Well, thanks for having me back at uh, Moody Spurn. I always enjoy um, being with you. And uh, of course, like you, sad that we can't actually be physically together, but grateful for technology. I guess if this lockdown had happened, what, a decade ago or more, we probably couldn't even have done what we're able to do now. So we're grateful for technology. Um, I'd like to, uh, I, I, I wasn't sure what to speak on, to be honest, but I thought I'd just keep plugging away at Ruth. So um, today we're in Ruth chapter three, Ruth chapter three, and uh, we've looked at chapter one and two. So we may as well follow the story through uh, to the end. So Ruth chapter three, I'll only read chapter three today and at some point in the future, hopefully get a chance to look at chapter four. One day, so Ruth 3, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours, and tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes and then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely re related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized and said, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then she went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz 
had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. Then Naomi said, wait my daughter until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Well, uh, Ruth and Naomi, both of them had been through some strange and difficult uh, times and had encountered pretty difficult experiences. Naomi had faced a famine in Bethlehem, which left her and her husband uh, feeling as if they had no alternative but to move to Moab to find food. So she experienced relocation life as a refugee or as a stranger in a foreign land. When she was there, she had lost her husband and her two boys, and it had been a painful journey. And at times, the things that Naomi had experienced almost overwhelmed her when she was asked by the women of Bethlehem when she eventually returned. Um, if she was Naomi, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She had this deep uh, sense of pain that she was carrying, and she had a sense that God's hand was against her. But for all of that, it had not been all doom and gloom. There had been little indicators along the way that God had not forgotten her. So the famine had lifted. And there was bread once again to eat in Bethlehem. And Naomi had returned to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, she discovered on that journey back to Bethlehem that she had a daughter-in-law that would be more faithful to her and more committed to her than any son could ever have been. And Ruth, what could we say about Ruth? She too had lost her husband. And here she is in Bethlehem trying to eke out a living for her and her mother-in-law, herself and her mother-in-law, gathering up the leftover stalks of barley that the harvesters leave behind or had left behind. But even for Ruth, there had been little indicators that God was for her as much as, she, as he was for Naomi. She had met a noble farmer in her gleaning who had lavished kindness upon her Ruth had been uh, gleaning and coming home with just outrageous amounts of barley every evening. And Aoife is about 22 liters, which is a huge amount of barley if you're just out gathering up the scraps. And even here in chapter three, we discover <coughs> that there are at least two men in Naomi's family circle that can perform the role of kinsman redeemer for Ruth, giving her and Naomi hope for the future. And these little indicators of God's goodness and of God's providence, it seems had served as a turning point, particularly in Naomi's life. Because in chapter 2, verse 20, we notice that for the first time in a long time, words of exaltation or words of praise or words of thanksgiving began to fall from her lips as she gave thanks to God for the fact that God had remembered her and her deceased husband. And uh, 
You can read about it in chapter 2, verse 20. So she's reached a turning point where she's beginning to sense that God is not against her. It may have been a long time since she felt her heart rising in worship and in praise in the way that she did as she listened to Ruth telling her about Boaz's kindness. But Naomi's confidence in the goodness of God appears to be growing, if not re-emerging. And uh, she is not only showing signs of worship, uh, she's beginning to take an interest in others and those who are lost in a sea of bitterness and sadness very often don't take an interest in anything that's happening outside their own world, their own dark world, and their own dark circumstances. But a sense of hopelessness has been replaced in Naomi's heart with a sense of hopefulness. She begins to make plans, and she begins to put those plans into motion. And you get a sense that her outlook is becoming a bit more positive. People who feel victims don't make plans. Uh, but Naomi's making plans for herself and for her uh, daughter-in-law. So um, Naomi is discovering that God's not against her. She's discovering that uh, God is for her. And I think in this chapter we see that that is giving her a sense of purpose and a sense of hope and a sense of courage to move forward with her life. Uh, I used to work with a pastor who used to say on a regular basis, uh, on a regular basis, because I am a man, I must never presume, but because I have a God, I will never despair. And I think Naomi has reached that point where she realizes that God is actually for her and still at work in her life, despite the tragedy of her past, God is still at work in her life. And that is giving her a sense of hope and purpose and courage as she moves forward. Well, I wanna try and look at the three people uh, in this story, Naomi, uh, Ruth, and then Boaz, if I can. So first of all, Naomi, uh, let's look at Naomi's plans. So in Naomi and Ruth's world, harvesting took place in April and May. It seems that the barley harvest came first, and then the wheat harvest came a few weeks later uh, towards the end of the harvest season. And when the crops had been tied, cut and tied into sheaves, it was then transported to the threshing floor where it would be trampled by animals or beaten with some kind of threshing sledge to detach the little grains from the stalk and then the outer shell from the inner kernel that was used, of course, uh, and crushed and used to bake bread. Then in the evening when the winds were up, they would uh, return to the threshing floor and they would toss the stalks and, and, and the sheaves up into the air and the wind would blow away the chaff and the kernel would drop then to the ground. And it's here at the threshing floor uh, at the end of the harvest that we break into the story in Ruth chapter 3. So Ruth and Naomi had been back in Bethlehem for probably around six weeks, it would appear. Uh, Ruth has already met Boaz, and it seems that uh, there is some chemistry forming between them. Ruth uh, had, uh, Boaz had been impressed by all that he had heard about Ruth, 
since she had returned and he clearly admired her sense of commitment to her mother-in-law and her kindness to her mother-in-law. Ruth had been overwhelmed by the kindness that Boaz had shown to her. And it seems that something is brewing between these two individuals, Ruth and Boaz. Now, I'm not sure if Ruth thought about a future with Boaz or if she just felt that would be beyond her station. Uh, did she give any thought whatsoever to the possibility of marrying Boaz? The truth is, I have no idea. But Naomi certainly gave it some thought, and she decided that it was her responsibility to try and do something to bring this couple together. Now, as we think about Naomi's plans, a couple of things. One, I want you to think about the fact that she was strategic. Now, as you read through, as we have read through Ruth chapter three, you might be tempted to think that Ruth was a bit, Naomi was a bit pushy. Um, and to our Western uh, 21st century minds, we might want to cast Naomi in the role of a scheming mother-in-law who is um, imposing or pushing or forcing her ideas upon her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But I think we need to remember that these are the days when parents arrange their children's marriages. Um, and and uh, not only did they arrange the event, the marriage, they actually were involved in choosing a partner for their children. Um, and what can we say about Ruth, uh, the way that she approached Boaz and proposes marriage to him? We might feel that that's a little bit forward, to say the least. Some of us might even accuse Ruth of throwing herself at Boaz. But I think the reason that we've come to those conclusions is because we've been influenced by Hollywood and what happens within the context of movies. And I think that we are removed from the customs and the laws and the traditions of the ancient uh, Hebrew people. When the children of Israel uh, came to live in the promised land, God divided the land and gave it to certain families. And when individual members of those families found themselves in difficulties, it was the responsibilities, responsibility and the right of their nearest and dearest to come to their help and provide whatever help, uh, aid or assistance they required. So the nearest relative was expected to redeem the troubled party out of their distress, to help them get out of their uh, distress, whatever that might be. And in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 22 to 28, we discover that this covered things like land, even people that had to be sold during a time of crisis, it was the responsibility of family members uh, to come to their aid and to their assistance. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 to 10 uh, makes it clear that these laws of redemption, the responsibility for close family members to come to the aid of those who were in distress or in a crisis, even covered widows who had lost their husband before they had the opportunity to have a family. So a nearest relative was expected to marry um, their brother's widow. And the first child born in that union was to carry the name of the, of the deceased husband so that that family uh, 
and their inheritance could be preserved within the promised land. So whilst other men could have married Ruth, no question about that, only a kinsman could have redeemed her and her family's name. And it seems to me that when Naomi made her plans to send Ruth to meet Boaz, she did so on the basis of what God's word taught. She believed on the basis of what she read in the law that Boaz was the man for Ruth. And she moves ahead, but she moves with it, she moves ahead within biblical parameters. She doesn't sit waiting for the marriage proposal to come to Ruth. She decides that she is within her rights to make a move and to coerce Boaz to declare his hand. And I think the Bible is such a balanced book, isn't it? In chapter two, we noted God's providence unfolding in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and no great effort on their behalf. It just happened that Ruth wandered into Boaz's field at the moment that he arrived to meet his workers. And you clearly see God's providence at work. Yet here we see a different side to the story. Naomi and Ruth are not sitting back waiting for everything to happen. They're full of activity and ingenuity. And isn't it true that some people wait around for the mountain to come to them, but they never make any attempt to actually go to the mountain? I know lots of churches who are doing that. They wait for the world to come flooding through their doors, but make no effort whatsoever to actually go and meet the world. And there's nothing in the Bible against being industrious or being on the move with God. And as we find ourselves on the move with God, it's important that we uh, move within the parameters of God's word. Um, so when we're walking the narrow way, we, we need to walk hand in hand, in hand with Jesus. Uh, but here we see Naomi, full of in industry, pushing ahead, and uh, she's not just waiting for everything to come to her. She's prepared to take action. She's prepared to launch into action and to actually do something um, uh, to try and, uh, as, she, as she seeks to follow what she believes God's word is teaching. And I think there's huge lessons in that for us. The other thing I'd say about Naomi is that she's sensitive. So as she bursts into her matchmaking plan, as she bursts into action, trying to matchmake uh, her daughter-in-law and Boaz, she did so not just because she believed that this was in line with what the law taught. I think she also sensed that God was opening the way before her. She knew as soon as she saw Ruth returning from the gleaning, from gleaning in the barley fields with an apron full of grain that someone had taken notice of her. Her hopes and maybe even her prayers were fueled when she heard that the man who was responsible was Boaz and that he was a kinsman redeemer of her family. And there was more than just the grain. Think about the way that Boaz had treated Ruth. He had told her to drink water from the water that his servants had drawn from the well. He invited her to eat at his table. Um, and later, I'm sure Naomi heard how he had instructed his young men to drop handfuls on purpose so that Ruth could gather them up. So I think not only does Naomi work within the parameters of what's taught in the law, 
but she senses through the experience of life that God is actually opening up a way for her. She senses that these are signposts. This is the way, walk ye in it. Boaz could have married lots of times. He's a wealthy, <clears throat> eligible bachelor. It's a miracle that he's still single. And Naomi senses, I think, that God is opening up a way and that God has been keeping Boaz for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Some people have no room in their theology or in their outlook for the fact that God might want to lead us individually and personally. For some, I think it's an overreaction to the subjectivism which is found in many brands of Christianity where it's more about how I feel than about what God says. So God says marriage is good, so we just go out and get married and we never think about the person that God might want us to marry or God wants some to be evangelists and some to be pastors. So we think, well, we'll just go and be a minister. And, and we don't actually sit down and think, or maybe I need to think about what God wants for my life. And, and that's what's happening here. There's a sensitivity. Not only does she, is she guided by what's being taught in the Bible, but she's sensitive to the fact that God is opening up a way before her. So she's, uh, she's um, clearly strategic. She's clearly sensitive. And finally, just about Naomi, she's sure. Naomi, Naomi believes that Boaz is the man to marry Ruth, and she wants to force him to declare his intentions. But as she sends Ruth to the threshing floor, is she throwing caution to the wind? Is this the best possible plan? Wasn't there another way in which Boaz could have been questioned about his intentions? Ruth was told to bathe herself and then spray herself in perfume in chapter 3 verse 3 she's to make herself as clean and as attractive uh, sweet smelling as 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 is possible to be to be before she goes to the threshing floor to meet with Boaz and once he lay down for the night she's to sneak up and lift the cloak and to lie at his feet and I'm sure Ruth must have been saying as she listened to Naomi's telling her what to do and yeah where do you think this will lead and that's when Naomi responds in verse 10 and says, he'll tell you what to do. Now, Naomi does not anticipate that Boaz will make any unwelcome move towards Ruth. She, she anticipates that he will tell her what, he need, what needs to be done in order for him to marry her. She does not entertain the possibility that Boaz will act in any kind of way which is ungraceful or unrighteous or that is seedy or sensual. She anticipates that he will simply tell her what to do. But why not send for Boaz and ask for a simple conversation? Why this risky midnight maneuver? Wasn't there the possibility that Boaz would drive Ruth away in shame? Wasn't there a danger that Boaz might think of this as some kind of sexual advance on Ruth's behalf? And was that Naomi's plan all along? Was she trying to trap Boaz into marrying Ruth? Or was Naomi so sure of the character of Boaz and Ruth that she could trust them at that time of night in this kind of setting? Did she know Boaz 
would be moved by this marriage invitation and that he would respond in kind. Did she know that Boaz and Ruth would treat each other with purity and with dignity until such times as their marriage was solemnized by the city elders? Well, what do we know about Boaz? Surely it indicates that he is an honorable man and a righteous man. He's got an impeccable testimony. In chapter 2, verse 1, he's described as a man of greatness. And that greatness didn't just relate to his financial ability. It related to his noble character. He was a great man. Look at the way he greets his workers. He, when he entered the field, he said, the Lord bless you. And look at how they responded. They said, the Lord bless you. Think about the way that he had been so generous to Ruth, how he had told his men to pull handfuls out on purpose and leave them lying for her. Think about his concern for Ruth's safety. He ordered his young men not to touch her or harass her. He asked Ruth to stay close to his harvesters because he wanted her to be protected by them. He was worried that if she went to another person's field that she might be harmed or treated wrongly. So Naomi, it seems to me, knows that Boaz is a gentleman and she knows that he's a man of character. And what about Ruth? Her own daughter, her own daughter-in-law. Well, Ruth's faithfulness is beyond question. Her commitment to God and to the ways of God are such that she was prepared to leave her family and home and come for a life to live with Naomi uh, among God's people. And it seems that Ruth had been the topic of conversation around the city gates. Look at how she's described in chapter three, verse eleven. She's described as a woman of excellence and or of noble character. What about the perfume? Well, it was customary for people in Bible times to anoint themselves with nice smelling oil, especially if you were gearing up for a marriage proposal. So her request for her request to Boaz to spread his cloak over her is in the very language of Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 8 to 10, where God's bride is being covered in perfume and God is pledging himself to her by spreading his, the skirt or the, his cloak over her. And uh, here in chapter 2, verse 12, there's a play on those words. It's, it, it's a, an exact quotation from Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 8 to 10. The words that God uses to describe his, uh, his bride and, and his proposal to his bride. Could she have gone at another time other than midnight? Well, maybe and probably, but this was the time that he would be alone. There would be no embarrassment if he refused. No one would really know what had transpired. If they had sent for him, then everyone would have known that he had been sent for and would have wondered what the outcome of that conversation was. Here she could slip quietly away and no one would have been any the wiser. But what strikes me about this whole thing is Naomi's absolute confidence in Boaz and Ruth. She trusted them. She knew that righteousness and purity would determine the way that they behaved towards each other. And it says a lot for the kind of reputation that they had earned for themselves. And the question needs to be asked, what kind of reputation have we earn for ourselves. As girls talk about young men, what kind of things are they saying about those young men? Is anyone saying things like he loves the Lord 
and he wants to walk with the Lord. And what about young men as they talk about girls? What kind of things are they saying about those Christian girls? Are they using words like excellence and noble character? Or are other kinds of adjectives being used? Well, here's a couple, and it seems to me that they have earned trust and they've earned the reputation of being noble and righteous. Well, secondly, very quickly, if I can, I want you to notice uh, Ruth, Ruth pursues. Look at her response to Naomi. In, in verse five, she says, I'll do all that you've asked me to do. And she prepared herself for the meeting with Boaz. And in verses 69, she went down to the threshing floor and, and, and uh, there would have been an evening of celebration, a harvest party, if you will. Boaz ate and he drank and the harvest had been safely gathered in and they're rejoicing and Boaz is cheerful. He's not drunk. As some people have suggested, you don't need to be intoxicated to be cheerful. He's full of the joys of harvest. And when the evening festivities are over, Boaz uh, lies down to sleep beside the corn to protect it with his men. It was then that Ruth quietly slipped in to the place where he was asleep and gently takes her place at his feet. And she lay there until he wakened. And uh, I'm, I, I'm sure she never slept a wink, just waiting for Boaz to waken. Um, and what do we make of all of this? Well, it's a bit unusual, isn't it? Um, these are customs and traditions, I think, that we don't know anything about in the 21st century. We live in a very different world. I think we need to be careful in the 21st century about the circumstances and situations that we put ourselves into. Not every young man out there is a Boaz. In fact, a lot of young men are a thousand miles removed from what Boaz was. They're more like Amnon in 2 Samuel chapter 13 than they ever are like Boaz. And the circumstances that some people put themselves in is foolish. I could list umpteen illustrations of that, but I won't take time to. But on the positive uh, in regards to Ruth, we could say, what a venture of faith. There's no cast iron assurances that he will respond positively to her. She's new to this whole Leverite thing, but she believes that rather than marry some young guy and start a new life for herself, that she should marry this older guy who will enable her to preserve the legacy of her husband's family. And she ventures out in faith, um, doing what she believes to be right, trusting that God will somehow work it out for her. And I think we've lost that kind of spirit in the church. We want everything to be worked out before we will trust God for anything. We don't know much about trusting God to care for us, protect us, or provide for us. It's not easy to allow yourself to become vulnerable financially, relationally, vulnerable to the possibility of rejection. But here's Ruth, and she trusts herself to God, and she ventures out on this quest to Boaz. And what about her request to Boaz? The moment of truth wasn't long in coming for her at midnight, he wakened with a fright. Many uh, people in the Bible have been wakened with a fright. What a fright Adam must have got when he wakened up and discovered Eve beside him. What a fright Jacob got when he wakened up and discovered that he had married the wrong sister. 
But Boaz wakened and what a pleasant surprise to find Ruth lying at his feet. And immediately in the language of Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, she asks Boaz to marry her, to perform the role of kinsman redeemer for her. She's come to find refuge under the wings of God and now she wants to find refuge under the wings of Boaz. And as she waited for his response, it must have seemed like an eternity. Had she and her mother-in-law read the signs right? Or would he be enraged at her behavior and chase her away? Well, Boaz was positive in his response. Ruth had won his heart. Clearly, they had not misread the signs. Boaz knew that he, she was only responding to the signals that he had clearly sent. He cared deeply about this girl. And as he thought, as he sat there and thought about the full implications of what Ruth was doing and what it had cost her, he was impressed with her kindness. He feels her kindness to Naomi is greater at the end than it was at the beginning because she could have married a younger man, but he couldn't have redeemed her. It was only a kinsman that could have redeemed her. But Ruth didn't want to go after younger men. She wanted to be faithful to her family. To, to live within the God-ordained pattern for her life. She wanted to raise up an heir that would preserve her family's name. She not only waited for God's time, but she waited for God's man. And this is where the rubber hits the road, doesn't it? Finding God's person, not just any person. What Ruth did runs contrary to all that takes place within society as we find ourselves as we find ourselves in it. The trend today is date 15 million people. And then when you've sown your wild oats, settle down to a boring life of monogamy. But that wasn't Ruth's way. She waited for God's man and she waited for God's time. And I don't think she regretted it. Well, finally, just a little bit about Boaz and then I'm finished. Boaz, as he prepares, he waited. That, that's important to look at. He waited. According to Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25, the initiative should have come from the kinsman redeemer, the nearest relative. And the reason that Boaz hadn't taken the initiative was because there was another relative who was more closely related to Naomi than he was. So even there, as the stars are shining and the woman that he loves is lying at his feet smelling like roses, Yet he says to her, there's a nearer kinsman. I won't be able to do another thing until the matter, the matter is settled with him. We'll need to wait, is what he says to Ruth. The stars may be beautiful. It may be midnight. You may smell like a perfume shop. I might love you with all my heart, but we'll need to wait. The right thing must be done. And when it comes to relationships, I know that most people say, away with your puritanical moral principles. When you find yourself in the situation that Boaz and Ruth find themselves in, when you find yourself at night alone with the one that you love, all kinds of temptation are staring you in the face. But we must follow the example of Boaz and do what is right and let the morning sun rise on our purity. Well, he waited. And secondly, he was willing. You see here, Boaz promises to take up her case. He didn't have to. All he had to say was, listen, there's another person more 
closely related to you than I am. But her interests lie heavily on his heart. So Boaz is not only willing to take up her case because, her, because he loves her. If she needs evidence of his love, she, he fills her apron full of grain and sends her back to her mother-in-law. And this is a token of his affection and his love for her. And look at what Naomi says when Ruth returns with the apron full of corn. Wait, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled. Now, how did she know that? How did she know that he would not rest until the matter was settled? Because that was the reputation that he had end, earned for himself. He was Mr. Dependable. You see, if Boaz had been a postman, he would have delivered the mail despite the blizzard. If Boaz had been a politician, he would not have rested until every promise he made in his manifesto had been fulfilled. If he had been a football manager, he would not have come home without the trophy despite the opposition. He was Mr. Dependable. He'll not rest until the matter is settled. How dependable are you? When you're asked to do something, will people say under their breath, I, I might as well just do it myself because I'll end up having to do it myself anyway. What kind of a reflection is that on the God whose nature we reflect, a God of faithfulness? And isn't it interesting that he had to answer his own prayer? Remember when Boaz first met Ruth, he said to her, may the Lord, may you be fully rewarded for all that you have done for your mother-in-law. Well, she is being rewarded. She's been given as much grain as she can carry home. And now she's been given assurances of marriage. And little did he know when he was making that uh, statement that he would need to answer his own prayer and that he would be the answer to his own prayer. You've got to be careful what you pray because God might ask you to actually answer your own prayer. If you pray for the lost, God might ask you to go and reach them. If you pray for those who are in difficulties, God may ask you to go and help them. And verse 17 is the last word spoken by Ruth in this little book. He gave me six, these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She's speaking kindly about her another. That's the last time she speaks in this book. She's doing, I think, what some marriage partners know very little about. She's speaking kindly about the person that she will spend the rest of her life with. Oh, to hear husbands and wives talking about each other in such tender terms, to be the kind of person whose last words about others are positive, the kind of person whose last recorded words were words of love and words of grace. No one to be remembered as someone who spent their lives running others down. Well, I don't know about you, but this reminds me of Jesus. There were other people that we could have run to in our pursuit of happiness and contentment. We could have pursued a life of dating, drugs, alcohol, all kinds of things that we could have run to to find help and happiness. But here's the truth. Only Jesus could redeem us. Only Jesus could buy us back from the poverty of sin. Only Jesus could promise us and give us <coughs> a future with God. And yet he was no on, under no obligation to redeem us. He didn't have to. Just like Boaz, he didn't have to redeem us. 
He didn't have to come and buy us back from the terrible crisis of sin. He didn't have to leave the splendor of heaven's glory. He didn't have to live in a world where he would have nowhere to lay his head, but he did. And why did he do that? Because he loved us. Even when we come to him, he could have sent us away in disgrace, but he won't. He promised all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And the wonder of this great chapter and of the message of the Bible is that we don't need to wait like Ruth. We don't need to wait to see if a rival kinsman wants us because there is no rival to Jesus. And we don't have to wait to see if it works. He will save to the uttermost all that come to him by faith. He will redeem us and restore us and give us a future if we come to his feet and ask him to cast the wings of his salvation over us. So in this great chapter of Ruth chapter three, I hope that you'll see a picture of Jesus. And I hope that you'll just remember Naomi. She didn't just sit back and say, que sera, sera. She's full of ingenuity and she's prepared to actually get up and do something. And Ruth, what a venture of faith as she goes and lies at the feet of Boaz. She trusts that somehow God will work it out for her. We all want to wait until God works, until everything's in place and everything is worked out to the finest detail before we'll trust God for everything, anything. But Ruth's prepared to be vulnerable as she trusts God. And the last thing was Boaz. Think about Boaz. What a great godly man he was. He waited, never touched her. But he was willing, and he was so willing that Naomi said, he won't settle until, he won't rest until the matter is settled. That's the reputation he had earned for himself. A man of faithfulness and and reliability. He's someone you could stake your life on. And uh, that's the kind of God that we represent, and we need to reflect something of his dependable character. Well, I've rambled on longer than I should have, and I'm going to hand back to Graham, wherever he is. Thank you for listening.